the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. The work of the Holy Spirit is to come alongside of us to be our comforter, our helper, and our counselor. That's why in the Bible we read how he will never leave us nor forsake us. When you go through times of suffering and difficulties and trials, God is always with you. He is the one who is called alongside of you. He is the one who is there to come alongside of you and to walk with you and to help you and to lift you up and to uphold you in his righteous right hand when you feel like you cannot take another step. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 2 Corinthians. Today, Pastor Gary talks to us about how our trials not only help shape us, but they allow us to become more aware of Jesus Christ and what he went through. We live in a day where everyone identifies as a victim. But those of you who have experienced true misfortunes, how much more can you empathize with others because of them? When we go through hard times, and make it through. It only strengthens our testimony. What tribulations have you gone through that help you see more clearly how you can help others? At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. We're going to be looking here together at 2 Corinthians. This is Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. And just by way of a little background on this second letter, this was written again by Paul from Macedonia later the same year that he wrote 1 Corinthians, which is 57 AD, roughly. Now, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was in Ephesus. Now he has moved on to Macedonia, and some believe that in particular he's in the city of Philippi. We don't know for sure. But in ancient Roman and Greek times, they divided Greece into two provinces. The northern province was called Macedonia, and the southern province of Greece was called Achaia. Now, Corinth was the capital of the southern province of Achaia, but Paul is located in the northern province of Macedonia as he writes this letter. So he's not in Corinth. He is going to send this letter by hand by way of Titus. We have a small epistle in the Bible called 
called Titus, but in the letter to Titus, Paul calls him my son in the faith. And Titus is a protege. He's a follower of Paul's. Paul has kind of mentored him and discipled him. And Titus is mentioned by name 10 times in this letter of 2 Corinthians. Titus' name is mentioned more times here in this letter than any other letter, including the letter that bears his name. In the letter to Titus, the epistle of Titus, Titus is only mentioned once. But here, Paul mentions him ten times by name through this epistle. Very fondly, he loves Titus and he has invested in Titus's life. And Titus will be the one who will hand deliver this second letter to the church at Corinth. And by the way, when you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there are these veiled references to other letters. In fact, there may have been four different letters that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, but we only know of two. The other two, some count three, some count four, but the other one or two are unknown to us. So this may in fact be 3 Corinthians or 4 Corinthians for all we know. But to the best of our knowledge, in terms of what is revealed, this is the second letter to the church at Corinth. He hand delivers it by way of Titus and it is written to refute false teachers who questioned Paul's apostolic ministry and who didn't like his first letter. Remember, the first letter was very corrective because there was a lot of stuff going on in the church of Corinth that was not godly, it was not spiritual. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I could not address you as spiritual, but worldly, or King James says carnal, because you were not living for the Lord. You're doing too many carnal things, sexual sin, suing each other, getting drunk, all this kind of stuff, okay? Now, what happens is when Paul leaves... He spent about 18 months establishing the church at Corinth, leaves, writes 1 Corinthians, his corrective epistle. And how many of you understand, if you get this word of correction, all right, if somebody were to write you a letter where they just kind of, you know, laid into you a little bit, and they're just giving some constructive but direct criticism for your own good, how many of you understand, if you don't like what you're reading, the way that you can discredit the message is to try to discredit the messenger, If you get a letter from somebody and you don't like the content, you attack their character. And that's what is happening here in 2 Corinthians. Paul is addressing the fact that some false teachers have come in after 1 Corinthians was read to the church. And these false teachers who don't like the correction, they're just going to attack the messenger. And they're going to question Paul's credibility as an apostle. Who does he think he is? He's not really an apostle. I mean, they're originally 12, and he had this vision of the Lord on the road to Damascus, you know. And so they start to discredit him as a messenger because they figure that if they can discredit him in the eyes of the Corinthian people, then they can discredit his message. And so Paul is going to write 2 Corinthians now, and he's going to basically give them reasons why he is legitimate Nobody likes to defend themselves, but in order to defend the gospel, he has to defend himself because if he wants the message to be received, he has to let the people know that he is legitimate as the messenger that God has sent here. And so what Paul is actually going to do, even before we get into chapter one here, we're going to do a brief survey of the first four chapters because in the first four chapters, Paul is going to establish what I'm calling his street cred. All right. Now, for those of you who don't understand urban language, that would be his credentials. What is Paul's credibility? He's going to establish it in the first four chapters. For those of you taking notes, one of the first things he's going to say is, I have credibility because of the way that I conducted myself through tribulation. And he's going to spend some significant time in chapter 1 talking about all of the various trials and adversities that he's experienced and how he came through it. Because you see, there's nothing quite like someone going through tragedy and difficulty 
that will testify to their credibility. Because when you've been through the fire, then you have kind of earned the right to be heard. Now, I'm not going to read all of this. If you look at just verses 8 through 11 of chapter 1, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now, he doesn't go into great detail here about the kind of hardships that he did endure to the point where he even felt like giving up on life. That's pretty serious. But as a testimony, he said, God sustained us. Spoiler alert, go to chapter 11, because I want you to see here exactly what some of the things are that he's referring to. And this is a list that I certainly wouldn't want to have to experience, but Paul did. And so he writes about it just to let the Corinthians know, look, this is what I've been through. As a testimony of my credentials, I just want you to know some of the stuff that I've endured. So here in chapter 11, starting in the middle of verse 23, middle of verse 23, he says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That's a pretty long list of stuff that he's been through. So when you go back to chapter 1, that's what he's referring to. He's like, you know what? I come with some life experience. You don't think that I'm a genuine apostle? I just want you to know this is what I've been through. One of the other things that he mentions here in chapter 1 lends itself to his credibility in ministry is his conscience in ministry. He says, you know, my conscience is clear in the way that I've conducted myself. I look further here in chapter 1 to verse 12. He says, now this is our boast, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. So he says, the way we've conducted ourselves in ministry, it has been with holiness and sincerity. So that's also part of my credentials. Then he's going to mention in chapter 2, his confidence in the church. If you let me highlight verses 1 through 4. He says, so I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who was left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. Okay, in other words, he says, the reason I was kind of harsh with you in the first letter is because when I came to you, I wanted to find that you had responded to this so then I could rejoice with you. I don't want to show up and then be sad. 
So I wrote these things out of my concern for you so that we could rejoice. And then he goes on there in the rest of verse 3. And he says, I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So he says, I have confidence in the church. In other words, he's saying, there are people who can verify or vouch for me that I wrote to you out of a love for you. And I came to you as an apostle because of my genuine care for you. And people in the church should be able to vouch for me in that regard. The fourth thing that he says in chapter 3 is, let the conversion of people be also a testimony of my credentials. Have you seen how people kind of get saved when I share the good news of who Jesus is? Look at chapter 3 with me, verse 1. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? I mean, he doesn't really like doing this. He's like, I don't really like talking about myself. Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He says here in verse 2, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence, King James says, our sufficiency comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So in other words, he's saying, you are the letter from Christ. You are the example read by all for people to see. It is your changed life through our ministry, and not that we're competent in ourselves. He says, our competence, our sufficiency comes from God. We're just the vessels. But you are living epistles and living testimonies that our ministry is legitimate. So he says the conversion of people is also part of my credentials. And then finally, he's going to say in chapter 4, the consistency of the message. If you look in chapter 4, in the first six verses, he writes this. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, even if you don't understand the message, the reason you don't is because you haven't given your heart to Christ. If you give your heart to Christ, you'd understand that this is true. He says, verse 4, the God of this age, meaning Satan, we'll talk about this later when we get to chapter 4, He says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Okay, notice again, verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. He said, our message has been consistent. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. And he said, we didn't bring to you the word of God by using deception or distortion. We brought you the truth of the word of God. We've told you who Jesus is. He is Lord. We're only servants. The message has been consistent. And let the word of God be proof for our apostolic calling. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, and we'll start now looking at chapter 1. The bottom line for his 
street cred, all right, is what he's going to write here in chapter 1, verse 1. Notice, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He's basically going to just start out this letter by saying, if you forget everything else I say about the list of my credentials, just know this. The reason I'm an apostle is because God has willed it. At the end of 1 Corinthians, he did say how he was an apostle as one abnormally born. In other words, he came to be an apostle by an uncommon means. The original group of 12 apostles, all right, the ones that Jesus hand-selected, and then, of course, minus Judas. But the reason that these are genuine apostles is because they all perform signs and wonders. Remember the two credentials for apostles. They performed signs and wonders, and they were all eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Now, Paul comes along in the 50s AD. His ministry begins, and he was not a part of the original called apostles. He says, but I'm one abnormally born because he said, I did see the resurrected Lord when he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. And he also, we know from scripture, performed signs and wonders as the Lord used him. So he says, I'm an apostle. I'm just one abnormally born. I'm one who came by a different uncommon means. However, the bottom line for the reason that I'm an apostle is because I've been chosen by the will of God. So he writes here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is helping him in this letter in some way. To the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. Okay, so here again is the southern portion of Greece. Achaia, the northern portion is Macedonia. And Corinth is the capital of the southern province of Achaia. So he's writing here, specifically the church of God in Corinth together with all the saints throughout Achaia, wherever this letter might be read. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his common introduction. Charis is grace in the Greek. Shalom is peace in the Hebrew. So this is covering both Greeks and Jews. He said, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3 he writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. All right, now he begins verse 3. NIV says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a King James or New King James, he writes, Blessed be the name of God the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be, the Greek word is eulogatos. It comes from... The verb eulogio from two Greek words meaning well to speak. Logio to speak, the prefix eu meaning well. So we get actually our English term eulogy from this Greek word eulogio, meaning to speak well of someone. Paul begins this letter by saying, let me speak well of God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. New King James says the Father of mercies. And the God of all comfort. That word is found nine times in the following five verses. He is going to write here about how God is the God of all comfort. And he's going to explain to us comfort because he's going to talk about tribulation or suffering. Between verses 3 through 11, here of chapter 1, Paul is going to explain to us two things. He's going to explain to us what suffering produces in us, and he's going to talk about what suffering produces through us. 
And again, he has lived this so he can write this. He is writing this from firsthand experience of his own suffering and his own tribulation and all the stuff that he's been through. And he says, but I just want you to know that through all this suffering and difficulty, he says, I have encountered the God of mercies or the God of compassion and the God of all comfort. Now, that word comfort in the Greek is periklesis. Periklesis is the noun that comes from the verb form perikaleo. Perikaleo means to call alongside of. And it is actually the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. Four times, Jesus uses that same word in John 14, 15, and 16 as a word for the Holy Spirit. In the King James, Jesus uses the word comforter. In the New King James, it translates helper. In the NIV, it translates Counselor, And the Holy Spirit is all those things. He is our comforter. He is our helper. He is our counselor. But it is from the same Greek word parakaleo, meaning the one who is called alongside of us. See, the work of the Holy Spirit is to come alongside of us, to be our comforter, our helper, and our counselor. That's why in the Bible we read how he will never leave us nor forsake us. When you go through times of suffering and difficulties and trials, God is always with you. He is the one who is called alongside of you. He is the one who is there to come alongside of you and to walk with you and to help you and to lift you up and to uphold you in his righteous right hand when you feel like you cannot take another step. This is the beautiful ministry of the Lord in our lives that Paul is going to write about here through chapter 1. And in the process, he's going to answer these questions. What suffering produces in us and what suffering produces through us. And one of the first things he's going to say here, we're going to look at five things that he says suffering produces in us and suffering produces through us. One of the first things that he's going to write here in verse 3 is, it produces a greater awareness of the tenderness of God. There is nothing quite like going through suffering of some kind that will produce a greater awareness, awareness of just how tender and loving your heavenly Father is. He writes in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, or mercies, and the God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. If you have a King James Bible or New King James, it uses the word tribulation. Tribulation in our English is derived from the Latin word tribulum. A tribulum was a device that was used to separate wheat from the chaff. A tribulum was a wooden board, and on the underside of this wooden board were inserted sharp flint objects. I want you to imagine like teeth on the underside of a long, flat board, almost like, you know, picture like a long sheet of plywood, and underneath were jagged flint pieces. And then there would be a threshing floor, and you'd throw down the wheat, and in order to separate the kernels of wheat from the chaff that was discarded, they would put the wheat down on the threshing floor, and then they would drag the tribulum over top of the wheat so that the friction of these flint teeth with the wheat would cause this movement to separate the wheat from the chaff. 
and then the chaff would blow away in the wind of the day, and you were left with the kernels of wheat, which was the useful part of the wheat. So I want you to picture the word tribulation from that word tribulum, because that's the kind of thing that he's describing. Living in unity with one another is never an easy task. Every member of the church is unique and filled with personality. And with that comes opinions. As you've learned from the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, though, unity within the body of Christ is a must. You don't have to agree on every tiny detail, but on the basic tenets of faith, members need to agree. Living in harmony does require humility and open communication and a willingness to follow the leadership God has placed over His church. We hope today's teaching on Cornerstone Connection has been encouraging to you. If you're in the area, we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia for a time of worship and Bible study. You'll find more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our website also houses our archive of Pastor Gary's teachings through the Bible, as well as additional resources to help you in your own study of the Word. You can even download our mobile app to take Cornerstone Connection with you on the go. You'll find all this again at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today. Pastor Gary has more to share from the book of 2 Corinthians, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know, you're not a Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.